Section 19 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Conclusion, Chapter 3. The steps by which Halliday solved the murder at the main house, and with it the mystery which had preceded it, constitute an interesting story in themselves. So certain was he that, by the time we were ready for the third seance, his material was already in the hands of the district attorney, and it was not the material he had given to Greeno. For the solution of a portion of the mystery, then, one must go back to the main house and consider the older part of it. It is well known that many houses of that period were provided with hidden passages by which the owners hoped to escape the excise. Such an attempt, many years ago, had cost George Pierce his life. But the passage leading from the old kitchen, now the den, to a closet in the room above it, had been blocked up for many years. The builder was dead. By all the laws of chance time might have gone on, and the passage remained undiscovered. In 1899, however, Eugenia Riggs bought the property, and in making repairs the old passage was discovered. Although she denies using it for fraudulent purposes, neither Halliday nor I doubt that she did so. She points to the plastered wall as her defense, but Halliday assures me that a portion of the baseboard, hinged to swing out, but locked from within, would have allowed easy access to the cabinet. But Halliday had at the beginning no knowledge of this passage, with its ladder to the upper floor. He reached it by pure deduction. It had to be there he says modestly, and it was. Up to the time young Gordon was attacked at the kitchen door, however, Halliday was frankly at sea. That is, he had certain suspicions, but that was all. He had discovered, for instance, that the cipher found in my garage was written on the same sort of bond paper as that used by Gordon, by the simple expedient of having any Cochrane get him a sheet of it, on some excuse or other. But his actual case began, I believe, with that attack on Gordon. At least he began at that time definitely to associate the criminal with the house. There was something fishy about it, is the way he puts it. And with Bethel's story to me, forced by his fear that the boy knew who it was he who had attacked him, their belief that it was fishy gained ground. Gordon was knocked out, he says, and that ought to have been enough, but it was not. He was tied, too, tied while he was still unconscious. Somebody wasn't taking a chance that he'd get back into the house very soon. It was that play for time, as he terms it, that made him suspicious. All this time, of course, he was ignorant of any underlying motive. He makes it clear that he simply began, first to associate the crimes with the house, and then with Bethel. He kept going back to his copy of the unfinished letter, but it didn't help much, he says quietly, only there was murder indicated in it, and we were having murder. He had three clues, two of them certain, one doubtful. The certain ones were the linen from the oarlock of the boat, torn from a sheet belonging to the main house and the small portion of the cipher. The one he was not certain about was the lens from an eyeglass outside the culvert. He began to watch the house. He didn't get Gordon in the situation at all. There was no situation there, really. Nothing, that is, that he could lay his hand on. But on the night I called him and he started towards Robinson's Point. As he came back toward the house, he saw the figure of a man, certainly not Gordon, enter the house by the gunroom window. When he got there, the window was closed and locked. He was puzzled. He looked around for me, but I was not in sight. Still searching for me, he made a round of the house, and so was on the terrace when I fired the shot. From that time on, he saw Bethel somehow connected with the mystery, but only as the brains. There was some devil's work afoot, he said, but I always I came up against that paralysis of his. He had to have outside help. On the night in question, then, he was certain that this accomplice was still in the house through all that followed, through Hayward's arrival and Star's. He was so certain by that time of Gordon's innocence that he very nearly took him into his confidence the next day. But he was afraid of the boy. 
She was not dependable. Halliday had an idea that he was playing his own game. But if this man was in the house that night, where was he? He grew suspicious of the den after that, and he found out through Star the name of the builder who had put in the paneling in the den for Uncle Horace. It was a long story, but in the end he learned something. Tearing the old baseboard prior to putting up the panels, the builder had happened on the old passage to the room overhead, and he had called Horace Porter's attention to it. It seems to have appealed to the poor old chap. It belonged, somehow, to the room, with the antique stuff he was putting into it. He built in a sliding panel. It was not a particularly skillful piece of work, but it answered. And he kept his secret, at least from me. I doubt if he ever used it until Prohibition came in. Then, no drinker himself, he put there a small and choice supply of liquors, some of which we found later on, and one bottle of which placed Halliday in peril of his life a day or so after the night I had fired the shot into the hall. He had borrowed any Cochrane's key to the kitchen door, and after midnight entered the house and went to the den. Although he is reticent about this portion of it, I gather that the house was not all it should be that night. You know the sort of thing, he says. But, pressed as to that, he admits that he was hearing small and inexplicable sounds from the library. Chairs seemed to move, and once he was certain that the curtain in the doorway behind him blew out into the room. When he looked back over his shoulder, however, it was hanging as before. He had no trouble in finding the panel, and as carefully as he could he stepped inside, but he had touched one of the bottles and it fell over. It didn't make much noise, he says, but it was enough. He was awake, and paralysis or no paralysis, I hadn't time to move before he was in the closet overhead and opening the trap in the floor. He had not had time to move, and even if he had, there were the infernal bottles all around him. So he stood without breathing, waiting for he knew not what. Things looked pretty poor, he says. I didn't know when he'd strike a match and see me, and it was good night if he did. But Bethel had no match, evidently. He stood listening intently, and in the darkness below Halliday held his breath and waited. Then Bethel moved. He left the trapdoor above open and went for a light, and Halliday crawled out and closed the panel quietly. From that time on, however, he knew Bethel was no more helpless than he was. He abandoned the idea of an accomplice and concentrated on the man himself. Annie Cochran was working with him, that is, she did what he asked her, although she seems not to have known at any time the direction in which he was working. Her own mind was already made up. She believed Gordon to be guilty. She made no protest, however, when he asked her to break Mr. Bethel's spectacles one early morning and give him the fragments. But she did it, pretending afterwards that she had thrown the pieces into the stove. Bethel was watchful and suspicious by that time, and she had a bad time of it. But what is important here is that Halliday took the fragments into the city and established beyond a doubt that they and the piece of a lens found near the culvert were made from the same prescription and he had no more than made his discovery when Gordon, attempting at last the blackmail she had been threatening, was put out of the way as quickly and ruthlessly as had been poor Peter Carraway. Twenty-four hours, Halliday says bitterly, and we would have saved him. But twenty-four hours later, Bethel had made good his escape, and everything was apparently over. But from that time Bethel was Bethel ceased to exist for Halliday. He was not working alone, however, very early he had realized that he needed assistance, real assistance. Annie Cochran's help was always of the below-stairs order, and he found the help he wanted after the night Gordon was attacked in Hayward. As a matter of fact, it was Hayward who went to him. He was worried about you, Skipper, Halliday says, with a grin. He considered it quite possible that the attempt to wrangle English literature into too many brain corrals might have driven you slightly mad. And breaks off to wonder, By Jove if that's where the English get their collegiate term of wrangler. 
On the night, then, when Gordon was hurt, the doctor was impulsively on his way to Halliday and the boathouse. He came within an inch of having you locked up that night, says Halliday. Later on, he did go to Halliday, and Halliday then and there enlisted him in his service. He was not shrewd, but he was willing and earnest, and from that time on he was useful. He had started, presumably, on his vacation, but actually on a very different errand, when the murder at the main house occurred, and Halliday recalled him by wire. But when he returned, it was, at Halliday's request, to hide in the Livingston house. It was from there that he came at night to assist Halliday in guarding the main house, and to provide, by the way, that sworn statement of the Livingston's butler that after the murder they had concealed someone in the house, which threw Greeno so completely off the track. One perceives, of course, that the Livingstons had been brought into the case. Dragged in is the way Halliday puts it. But after the first conference between the doctor and himself, they were in it, willy-nilly. Oh, Halliday asked Hayward, referring to his copy of my Uncle Horace's letter, but likely to have access to Horace Porter at night. No one, so far as I know. The Livingstons, possibly. Then the man who came in while he was writing this letter might have been Livingston? He was ill that night. I was with him. Then Livingston's out, said Halliday, and turned in a new direction. Some theory, some wickedness was put up to him, and it horrified and alarmed him. A man doesn't present such a theory without leading up to it. Let's try this. What subject was most interesting Horace Porter during the last years or months of his life? Spiritism, I imagine. I know he was working on it. Alone. A man doesn't work that sort of thing alone, as a rule. I'll ask Mrs. Livingston, if you like. She may know. And ask the Livingstons he did, with the result that Halliday got his first real clue, and elaborated the daring theory which culminated in that fatal fall from the ladder, in the secret passage on the tragic night of the 10th of September. All this time, of course, it remained only a theory. Hayward scouted it at first, but came to it later on. The Livingstons offered a more difficult problem. They didn't want to be involved, Halliday says but after Edith's letter came, I more or less had them. And of course, after he tried to get into the house and left the print of his hand on the window ward, they had to come in. They denied any knowledge of the passage before that, but he knew it as well as I did, or better, and that there was a chance old Bethel knew it, too, and had used it. This letter of Edith's, to which I have already referred, runs as follows. Dear Madam, I have read your article with great interest, and would like to suggest that a good medium might be very useful under the circumstances. You have one of the best in the country in your vicinity— she has retired, and is now living under another name somewhere in the vicinity of Oakville. I understand her husband has made considerable money, but she may be willing to help in spite of that. When I knew her, she was known as Eugenia Riggs, but this was her maiden name, which she had retained. Her husband's name is Livingston. I do not know his initials. She has abandoned the profession in which she made so great a success, but I understand is still keenly interested. The letter is not signed. Halliday did not require that knowledge. He had suspected it before, but it gave him a lever. One attempt had already been made by Bethel to get back into the house. Time was getting short, before long we would have to go back to the city, and although he knew by that time who and what Bethel was, he could prove nothing. To go was to abandon the case. He could not secure the arrest of a man because his lens prescription was the same as the murderer's, or on the strength of an unsigned book manuscript left behind the wall of the den. He could not prove that Maggie Morrison had died in the process of the experiment Gordon had puzzled over, because the mud on the truck wheels corresponded with the red iron clay of the lane into the main house. He could not prove his own interpretation of the abbreviations S and GT so liberally scattered through the diary. And he could not prove that it was Bethel, who, looking for the broken lens in or near the culvert, had found my fountain pen there. A fact which Gordon had noted in the journal as follows. I have them now, sure. W.P. was here last night and left his fountain pen. 
that he could, through the Livingstons, take a chance on proving all these things. And against Livingston's protests and fears, prove it he did. As a matter of fact, he says, they were in a bad position themselves, and they knew it. They had to come over again. Things were, indeed, rather parlous for the Livingstons. The butler's story had turned the suspicions of the police toward them, and on the night of my threatened arrest, Halliday deliberately used them to avert that catastrophe. As a matter of fact, he says cheerfully, I gave the police a very pretty case against them. It was all there, according to Greeno, even to the handprint. But he held them off. He had done what he wanted, turned the police along a false trail, and was free once more to travel along the true one. And in this he says, and I believe, that his purpose was not mercenary. The situation was peculiar, he says. The slightest slip, the faintest suspicion, and he was off. And he goes back again to the subtlety and wariness of the criminal himself, so watchful, so wary, that throughout it had even been necessary to keep me in ignorance. You had to carry on, Skipper, he says. In a way, the whole thing hung on you. Even then you nearly wrecked us once. Which was, he tells me, the night of the second seance, when the criminal actually fell into the trap and entered the house. Livingston was on guard upstairs that night, and everything would have ended then, probably. But you spilled the beans. He accuses me. From the first, the seances were devised for a purpose, and I gather that some of the phenomena were deliberately faked in pursuit of that purpose. On the other hand, Mrs. Livingston has always been firm in her statement that things happened, which she cannot explain. The sounds in the library, the lights and the arrival of the book on the table are among them. But, trickery or genuine psychic manifestations, in the end they served their purpose. I called the third seance, and the mystery was solved. It is not surprising that my memory of those last few moments is a clouded one. I was, of all those present except the police, the only one in complete ignorance of the meaning of what was going on about me. Edith knew, and was bravely taking her risk with the others. Even my dear Jane knew a little. No wonder she required her smelling salts. Actually, out of the confusion, only two pictures remain in my mind. One was of Greeno staring at Livingston, and then directing aside the curtains of the cabinet, where Halliday and Hayward had opened the panel, and after turning on the red globe hanging there, were stooping over a body at the bottom of the ladder. The other is of that figure at the foot of the stairs. I know now that it could not have been there, that it was lying, dead of a broken neck, at the foot of the ladder. I have heard all the theories, but I cannot reconcile them with the fact. How could I have imagined it? I did not know then who was inside the wall. I am not a spiritist, but once in every man's life comes to him the one experience which he can explain by no law of nature as he understands them. To every man his ghost, and to me, mine. In the dim light of the red lamp, dead though he was behind the panel, I will swear that I saw Cameron, alias Simon Bethel, standing at the foot of the stairs and looking up. End of section 19